Hello, I'm Charles Bowman and welcome to this a very special episode of Off the Agenda. We are again in the City of London, the international hub for financial and professional services and home of the historic St Paul's Cathedral, where we are today. And I am delighted to be joined by a very special guest, Sir Damon Marcus Buffini, Deputy Chair of the BBC Board and Chair of the BBC Commercial Board. Sir Damon grew up on a council estate in Leicester. He studied law at St John's College, Cambridge, before earning an MBA from the Harvard Business School in 1988. He began his career with LEK Consulting, a global strategy consulting firm based in London and Boston, before joining Schroeder Ventures Europe. Sir Damon was a founding partner of the renowned private equity firm Pamira and served as its chairman and managing partner from 1997 to 2010. Under his visionary leadership, Pamira's funds under management experienced an extraordinary growth from 1.9 billion euros to over 20 billion euros, solidifying the firm's reputation as the European private equity firm of the decade from 1996 to 2006. Beyond the world of finance, Sir Damon's passion for the arts, culture and philanthropy has led him to take on prominent roles. In 2012, Sir Damon was appointed Governor at the Wellcome Trust, a £25 billion global charity dedicated to improving global health and well-being for people around the globe. In 2015, he was appointed Chair of the Royal National Theatre, an institution dedicated to creating world-class theatre and making it accessible to everyone. He chaired the £2 billion Government Culture Recovery Fund, which ensured the survival of cultural institutions in and across the UK. And in 2017, he chaired the Patient Capital Review, a transformative initiative aimed at revolutionising the provision of large-scale development capital in the UK. A few years later, in 2022, he assumed the role of Chairman of BBC Holdings, a £2 billion business that brings the best of British content to a global audience. He served as a non-exec director of Schroeder's PLC, a global investment manager responsible for over $900 billion of investor assets. In addition, he chairs the Royal Anniversary Trust, a charity that endeavours to promote world-class excellence in UK university and colleges through oversight and management of Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II prizes for higher and further education. And in 2016, his dedication to public service earned him his knighthood for voluntary and charitable services. And it is my great, great pleasure to welcome Sir Damon to Off the Agenda. Damon, thank you so much for joining us and a big welcome today to the Chapter House in St Paul's and to Off the Agenda. Thank you. I really appreciate you joining us. Delighted, delighted to be here. Um, Fantastic. I'm going to take you right back to the to the beginning. Uh, you're the son of an uh, African-American serviceman and a British mother, and you were raised in Leicester during the Windrush era, when many families sought to settle in the city. Uh, I'm keen to ask, can you recall some of the things that shaped you when you were growing up in the early 1960s? Yeah, I can. It's a long time ago, Charles, but um, as you said, my father was a black serviceman and my mother met him. There were some bases outside of Leicester. Uh, they got together, um, he, but he had to go back to America. And at the time, really mixed uh, relationships, mixed marriages were actually illegal in America. So my mother decided to stay in Leicester. So I was brought up on a council estate by a single mother 
just myself and my sister and my mother with my grandparents. My mother's white, she's English, Irish. My grandparents are completely white and the whole council estate was effectively completely white. So I was brought up in a, a really interesting working class background um, on a working class council estate. My, um, my grandparents, their background was service. So they were in service. So upstairs and downstairs, they were downstairs. Uh, and my mother didn't really f finish her education. Uh, it's very bright, but just didn't finish it. And so in our household, education was absolutely the paramount, paramount driver. They really realized the power of, of education in, in getting you from one place to another, and they hadn't had that benefit. So that was one real driver in our, in our family. The other, the other driver was that I used to go to school on the bus and the whole estate used to go to work. The work ethic was incredible. So they were all workers in factories in you know, the textile factories, the shoe making factories. They all used to go to, go to work on the bus, come home on the bus. Um, and it was just, it seemed to me that everybody had that work ethic. Uh, and that was fantastic to see. And that really rubbed off on me and instilled that, that uh, working ethos. And then, as I sort of alluded to, I was probably the only person of color on our estate until Idi Amin ejected the Asians in the early 70s. And we moved to, to our council estate in 64. So I was probably the only person of color on, on our estate. So that had a had a, a real effect on me, as you can imagine. It was a pretty tough place. But it was really, it was dynamic, it was colorful. My recollection of it is, it was, it was tough, but it was, you know, it was a, it was a really cohesive community. Everybody went to the local pub, everyone knew each other. So it's, um, Strong it was not a bad, yeah, it was not a bad environment. And you mentioned uh, education, you were educated in Leicester and, and then that investment, uh, one year place at St. At John's College, Cambridge, where you graduated with a degree in law. And then after completing your studies, uh, there and starting work with Ali K consulting, we'll come back to that in a minute. You earned an MBA from Harvard Business School. Uh, I'm keen to, to understand the nature of the experience of your journey through education from Leicester to Cambridge uh, and then to the MBA in the, the US. What were the, what, what were the areas in which you excelled? What did you learn? Where, what were the challenging zones for you through that education journey? And how critical was the journey uh, to you uh, and your success thereafter? Well, ed education is a passport. Right, it, it definitely is, and as I as I mentioned, my family certainly understood that. Uh, and and so um, when I when I passed the eleven plus, they were they were delighted. I had no idea what it was, right? So and they they clearly understood that was a you know that was the first step in the journey. Now, now Leicester's a very strange place. It's it's ringed by council estates. So when I went to grammar school, it it, it wasn't actually. Um, it, 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 it was a social structure that was informal. So if you went to a, if your parents were a, were a doctor or a dentist or professional, you went to one grammar school. If your parents were, I don't know, market traders, you went to another. But if, you're, if you came from a council estate like I did, you went to Gateway Grammar. So it was, it was really socially stratified. So you can imagine the grammar school I went to was full of very, very bright, but very, very hard to manage young people, boys, all boys. Um, so for instance, you know, we set the supply teacher's blazer on fire with a Bunsen burner. We had prefab, we had prefab buildings on the roof and someone tried to set those on fire. So it was really tough. 50% of, 
uh, all boys that went there dropped out before they did their O-levels, 416, go and work in the factories. So it was a very tough, it was, it was a, it was an environment where it was a little bit out of control, but the teachers were, were really focused. If you wanted to work, they would help you. And at some stage I just thought, well, look, if I'm going to, if I'm going to progress, I really do need to buckle down and, and work a bit harder. So I did, I was never the brightest in our class. It was really, you know, 10, 10 inspiration, 90% perspiration, as they say. Um, and. I got into a situation where I did quite well in my levels and they said to me, well, why don't you think about Cambridge? And I said, well, so where's that? They said, well, you know, you should really think about it. So I thought, okay, well, it's not really not for me, no doubt, so, but I'll give it a go. Um, and did quite well in the exams and I went, they said, well, come for an interview. So I went for an interview. It's first, the first time I've been to Cambridge and I met someone called Peter Linholm who became my tutor. He was like, Dumbledore before Harry Potter. Last time I, he's passed away now. Last time I saw him, he was wearing a cloak. Um, and he, he thought he saw something in me that, that made, you know, made, thought I would fit there. So, so that's how I got to Cambridge. I did law at Cambridge. Uh, the reason I did law is I thought that would be, that's a good profession to, 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 to embark on. I would have been a terrible lawyer, awful. So I actually left Cambridge without a job because I thought that wouldn't, that would be the wrong thing to do. And then I stumbled upon this very small consulting firm called the LEK partnership. I think I was employee number between employee number 10 and 20. They've now have offices all around the world. They're really incredibly successful. Uh, and they were consulting and they were starting to, um, uh, create a practice in mergers and acquisitions, really early mergers and acquisitions. Uh, consulting. I really enjoyed that. I thought it was fantastic. Um, the consulting bit, the analytical bit, I wasn't so good at. I'm actually not very good at numbers. So, um, but that was really exciting. And then they said, well, if you can get into Harvard Business School, we'll sponsor you to go. And again, I said, well, fantastic. I left the office and said, well, you know, where, where's Harvard Business School? What is that? But I did a bit of research and I, and I got in and, and went to Harvard Business School. So that's the, that's the educational journey. My gosh, extraordinary. And, and how would you compare and contrast the UK and the US systems? Well, if, if you go from a firm being large estate, which is where I was brought up, to the colleges in Cambridge, they are absolutely beautiful, like stunning. Uh, for me, it was, like, it was like the moon. It was just so dramatically different. Um, and the people were really different as well there, um, very academic. I was concerned when I went there that they'd all be absolute geniuses. Of course, some of them are, but most of them are not. So all of a sudden you find, you find your way. Um, Harvard Business School was different in that it was much more international. It was business, finance. I really, really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, again, it's a beautiful place to, to study, beautiful place to study on the banks of the Charles. I, there, there are some challenges that you encounter, right? At Cambridge and the, early eighties, there were very, not very people like me there. Most of the people like me looked like me were African princes, to be honest. Um, and so I came across some sort of social barriers. So people would exclude me from things because of, they'd never really come across anyone like me, either from my background or, you know, the, my color. So that was difficult. Um, even though I, growing up in Leicester, you'd encountered all this pretty much every single racial slur you could imagine from the age of five. 
actually dealing with that in Cambridge was difficult because it wasn't absolutely up front in your face, but you had to deal with it. So it really made you more resilient. I think the education system in the US, so post-grad is, it's quite formative because you're there and you're really enjoying what you're doing. Um, I think the country itself, for me, coming from the back, my background, which is, as I said, my mother is white, my grandparents are white. The, the, actual, the division in that country is really stark. Uh, the racial division is absolutely there. It's there all the time. I encountered it and I found that very difficult. You know, I think as a, you know, my, my wife is Chinese and I think actually living in America, certainly in the eighties as a mixed race couple been very, very tough. So educationally, similar places, you meet lots of different people. You manage, you manage to understand and work with different people from different environments. It's a real benefit. Of course, going to America really opens your eyes as to it, it, the international nature of, uh, uh, you know, business and the global, um, economy, it, it was just a fantastic experience in the, in the mid eighties. Fantastic. It gave you a much broader vision, essentially. Of... Broader vision, broader understanding of, of what is achievable, where industry was going. If you remember, this was the time where the stock markets were starting to boom, barriers were coming down across the globe. It, studying business at Harvard Business School was a, was a, a, a really great opportunity. I can imagine. Um, in 1998, you were recruited to join Schroeder Ventures and known then as Schroeder Ventures Europe. What influenced your decision to move into the venture capital trajectory world and how pivotal was that moment in your career and in shaping the ambitions you have today? So when I left university in 84, the city was really close to, to people from my background. I mean, it, it was an old school tie, I think. I think I'd burnt my school tie or someone had burnt it for me. So that was just, just no chance. And that's why I went to LEK. I thought LEK was a, a really, a great place to, to start in the city or associated with the city. And then I went to, as I said, I went to Harvard Business School. But by 1988, the city had really changed. A big bang had happened. The Americans had come, competition was changing, all sorts of different uh, opportunities. And, um, so Schroeder's really had to, had to change and they needed different sorts of people. They needed people that were more entrepreneurial, different backgrounds. Um, and so they started something called Schroeder Ventures, which they were still quite blue blooded. And they said, well, you know, that's where the entrepreneurs can sort of go. Uh, I, and that's what I, um, I was interviewed for. So I, I, I remember I met Nick Ferguson and Wim Bischoff. So Wim Bischoff, who was the chief exec at the time, they came to Harvard to recruit, they held a cocktail party. Uh, I was five minutes early and everybody else was 10 minutes late. So I had 15 minutes with Nick Ferguson, Wim Bischoff, um, and they asked me to come for an interview you know, in, in London. So that was, that was a, and I was there for 27 years after that. So turning up five minutes early really made a big difference to my life. The, the other aspect of that is I turned up, um, had a huge amount of interviews. I met every partner, it was a very small firm. I thought I did really well. They offered me the job. Great, great. I thought I was really absolutely brilliant at that time. And then six months later, I, um, I sat down with the team and said, well, look, you can tell me now, why did I get the job? Was it my sort of financial acumen or was it the fact that I was so great at strategy? What was it? And they said, well, no, everybody was absolutely the same. 
but you were the only one when you came out of the elevator, you said hello to the receptionist. Yes. And she said, she went straight back to the partner's office and said, look, you've got to recruit this guy, he's human. And, and that really has stuck with me. It's, it's obvious to me throughout my whole career that people really do like to work with people they like. Uh, and that's been, that was been something that's really been a driver for, for me and Pamira as, as we built the firm, really treat people as you'd want to be treated yourself. And it's a fantastic lesson. You became a partner in 1992 and then led the buyout in 1997, becoming a managing partner and as you say, renaming the firm uh, Pamira. And looking back at that executive career trajectory and that part of your life, uh, what were your proudest moments? Uh, and with hindsight, what advice would you give the sort of the 18 to 25 year old version of yourself starting with your career path and journey sort of today? So let, let, let me give you a little bit about, about Shred Adventures and Pamira, because um, everyone sees Pamira as it is now, but actually in 1988, it was tiny. The industry was tiny. The firm was small. It was a group of what I would consider to be outsiders, really. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, it was unusual. So in the early nineties, 30% of our, of our partners were women in the early nineties. Gosh. Uh, so very progressive, pretty diverse. Um, it was an industry that was really forming, but, but it was quite small. So we spent the first six or seven years as a firm, really investing small companies, small transactions. And if you really wanted to earn a lot of money, you wouldn't have gone into private equity and venture capital at that time, you would have gone into investment banking or law, but we really st stuck with it. Um, and we created a, a partnership, which was based on trust and respect. Mm -hmm. Uh, and a lot of the partners were there for, I was there for 27 years. Yeah. A lot of the partners were there for 27, 30 years. Uh, and we built the firm based on respecting everybody in the firm. We called our, we called ourselves Pamera because that was, that meant something surprising and different. And we wanted to have a surprising and different culture. Yep. Uh, and it was based on that bedrock of trust. So that was trust your partners to do the right thing, to do the right thing for your clients, for your investors, for your, for the firm, for, for other partners and for people that work with you, even if the partners had retired you're expected to treat them with the way that they were treated when they were in the firm. So that was really fundamental to, to how we grew, grew the business. And, you know, we also learned a lot, as you can imagine, going from a firm that had 500 million under management to nearly 30 billion. We, we did a lot. We made, we did very well. We yeah. made some mistakes. I remember one of our partners in the really early days, we used to get a lot of some mad ideas and eventually we said to we had a meeting of the partners and we could go all, all, all around this table. The firm was so small. We said, look, you know, next person who comes in with a mad idea, you know, we, we, we just got to tell them, forget it. So one of my partners took that literally. Um, and then he said, look, he said to this person in front of him, you know, my advice to you is don't give up your day job. Right. And with that, James Dyson took his vacuum cleaner and left our office. Right. So. So we had our fair share of mistakes, um, but over time we really developed as a firm. And, yeah. um, but what, what's made me really proud about that is now I've retired from Pamira. It just goes from strength to strength. We built it as a partnership. So it wasn't me. Yeah. It was a lot of people. Um, and I, I think we had a lot of fun. Um, so there, that's what, that's what stays with me from my 
Pamira days. And so your second question was, what would I, what would I say to an 18 to 24 year old just start starting out? Um, if I look back on, you look back on sort of education, going to LEK and going to Pamera, what that says to me is you should be thinking big. Uh, the, the opportunities are really there. And yeah, you need to take them step by step. But I went from effectively living in the council estate in Thurnby, Thurnby Lodge in Leicester to being a partner of Trader Ventures in 10 years. Right. And so thinking big, taking step by step, you definitely have to, you definitely have to do that. Uh, you know, I think people from, from any background, certainly people from my background, you have to take the opportunities that are presented to you. You know, there are no, there are no safety nets. There's no retakes. There's no gap year. But if, so if someone offers you an opportunity, you've got to grasp it with, with both hands and really make a go of it. Um, and, and I, I really do think that having a persona where people enjoy working with you, when you walk into a room, people are glad you're in it. Cause for some people, that's definitely not true. Right. Um, I think you just get them, get them more out of, you get more out of people. So I, I, for, for me, they're the, they're the, that's so they're lovely. The I give really, really lovely answer. And you, you make reference to the importance of partnership and the importance of having fun kind of professionally. Uh, two uh, characteristics I sense were really critical to the success of your business and your own success. We were we were just a we were a group of relatively young professionals yeah. who were starting out who came together in the late eighties, and we were all together for pretty much thirty years. It's an extraordinary stuff. Uh, yeah, and in an industry that was growing, so it was very exciting, very dynamic. Things were changing. We learned a huge amount. Uh, but as a partnership, we all got together every year and, and we were, we were in an environment which we just enjoyed being in, um, you know, whether that was because we were, we felt of ourselves as a family because we, we knew everybody's extended family because we've been together for so long. It was all part of, it was all part of the firm. Tremendous. Post that executive career, you served uh, as a non-executive uh, director back with Schroeder's PLC, that is the global investment manager, now responsible for over 900 billion of investor assets. With that broad expertise across public and private markets, what have been some of your highlights and business learnings uh, from that important asset wealth management sector? So it was a real privilege to join the main board of Schroeder. So having started there as a junior yeah. in Schroeder Ventures, to be asked to join the main board by, um, by Mike Dobson was, was a real privilege. And, I, and I'd worked with uh, Govey Mallinckrodt and with Bruno Schroeder. They'd been part of the Schroeder, Ven Schroeder Ventures premiere story. So that was, that was great. Um, look, I, Schroeder's, Schroeder's is no different to any other business at the moment. Right? It is being, every business is being disrupted. Schroeder's has a benefit that it has a a family shareholder who's been there for 300 years, maybe more, um, which gives them the ability to make long-term decisions. Um, but nevertheless, because of the internet, because of transparency in pricing, because everybody can access your customers, the business model is being disrupted across asset management. Uh, and so it, it's like every business. When, when I was growing up, I spent a bit of time working at the gas board and 
the whole whole of industry was dominated by these big companies. Yep. Remember, like you know, Hanson Trust, ICI. Big was the thing. Big, big ate the small, and you'd always going to win if you can have that sort of scale. That's completely changed now. It's business models are being so disrupted. It's the fast that really eat the slow. So if you can if you can create a business model that really works, you can access effectively billions of customers immediately to sell them your product. So you have to be willing to change really, really quickly. And asset management is really definitely in that space. Um, I think in terms of private and public, I think when you have a disaggregated shareholder model like you do in public companies, the governor, what I learned is the governance model is really important. So I, I was very impressed with, I'd never, never been on the board of a public company before, so go onto the board of Schroeder's. I was really impressed with the, the governance model there, the fact yep. that yeah, they took their responsibility looking after the shareholders' money incredibly importantly. Um, and uh, that's a good lesson to learn. I think where private markets have the edge is just the speed of movement. Just the speed of movement and the ability to do things in a, in a way which grasps opportunities when they're there. So trying to combine those two elements would be, uh, you know, for, for any company, public or private, would be a good thing. In 2005, you became a founding trustee of the Buffini Child Foundation. That's with your wife, Lady Deborah Buffini. An extraordinary foundation promotes and funds access to education activities for young people. What have been the most uplifting philanthropic moments and engagements since its start? And what impact has had the foundation had on the lives of younger people? So you, you mentioned that. We started together, myself and my wife. We've been married for 30, 35 years, I think, nearly 35 years. Um, and we believe in, we've been the beneficiaries of education in this country. So yep. a free education, when I look back and think, you know, I went through grammar school, university, and I didn't pay a penny. It was all free funded by the taxpayer. What a fantastic mechanism for social mobility. My wife is the same. We live in this country. We're really proud to be British. But we also understand uh, the power of education, so access to education and access to the opportun opportunities thereafter. Yep. So that's what our foundation does. We set up to do things that, to give young people a fair crack of the whip. Well, now, whether that's access to the arts, whether that's access to uh, education in schools, so we support academies in this country, apprenticeships in this country, we're supporting young people in employment. We've helped build schools with others outside this country in Africa. We sponsored young people through ballet school, all sorts of things. And it's really all about young people, giving them opportunities, and then ensuring that when they are qualified, the door is open for them so they can actually use those qualifications to, to move forward. Um, and, and that's what, when you say what have been uplifting moments, I mean, there's been a huge amount, yeah. but what we really, what we, what really motivates us is when we see young people progressing, but in all, in all the walks of life that we've, that we've supported. And also we've worked with a lot of people in partnership. So it's, it, it's very encouraging when you work with people that really share the same, you know, the same mindset and have the same motivation as, as we do. Yeah. And then in 2010, you co-founded the Social Business Trust, the charity organization that has helped over 3 million people uh, since its start. And you've made investments in many UK-based social enterprises such as Women Like Us, London Early Years Foundation, and the Inspiring Futures Foundation. What led you to start this other organization? And again, what are the inspirational 
moments coming from this, again, extraordinary organization. I, I didn't know what a social enterprise was. So I, I, I met Adele Blakeborough in 2005, yep. and um, she sort of explained that she was, she was running this social enterprise. Uh, it was helping, I think, young people with education or something like that. But she had a problem, and her problem was scaling up. And she said, look, this is really endemic in the social enterprise world. These organizations that have got a mission at their heart, they do make money, but they invest it all back into the mission. They just can't get bigger. And the reason they can't get bigger, she said, was that they don't have access to the normal skills, services that big companies have. So we said, well, okay, we wonder together, we said, okay, I wonder what would happen if we, if we encouraged, persuaded, cajoled some big businesses to give, to give money, but really predominantly time that they would, then we'd apply to social enterprises, wonder whether we could make them bigger, right? Scale them up. So that's what, that was the genesis of social business trust. Um, and, and two things happened that were really quite encouraging. One was that, yes, you could apply those skills and you, they, it did work, not all the time, but did create some pretty big social enterprise, some that you mentioned. Um, but the other benefit is that the, uh, the um, big companies, the employers found out that their people really enjoyed it and really found it incredibly beneficial to give their time, but their expertise to something that made a difference in society. Because a lot of these social enterprises are providing skills and services and parts of the economy that nobody else is providing those services, but it's absolutely essential. So to be able to use your day job to make a difference in those, in those places was something that employees found really, really beneficial and became, for some of these companies, a really good recruiting tool. So you mentioned, uh, the social business trust is, it is still going very successful. I think it's now helped 2.7 million people, but it's also provided yeah. the opportunity for something like 48,000 hours of volunteering. So that's, um, so the provision of the ability to provide these skills, these social enterprises will not have access to. I think that's the, that's why the social business trust has been so successful. Tremendous. I'm going to change tack a, a little. It was in 2015 that you appointed chair of the Royal National Theatre. Uh, his mission is to create world-class theatre and make it available to everyone. And you've chaired it now for, I think, some eight years. Um, I'm, what are your, what's your view on some of the most sort of successful uh, productions there, the most inspiring to the public? Uh, and maybe you can give our listeners a, a view as to some of your personal favourites. So we, the National Theatre is great because every year we, we produce 20 and put on 20 plays on the South mm -hmm. Um, so I've got to choose from over a hundred, which is, I've seen most of them, some of them twice, some of them I'm glad I saw twice some of them wish I hadn't, but nevertheless, um, most of the time they're great. Uh, so we've had plays like the Lehman trilogy, Amadeus, uh, at the moment we've got Dear England, which yeah. is about Gareth Southgate. It's, it's great. The variety is brilliant. The art, the artistic standards, fantastic. And it, you know, the national theater really exemplifies what is great about the UK, right? We are so, we're world leaders in the creative industries, yeah. no, undisputably. Um, and the National Theatre is really in the center of that. It's also quite an innovative place. So we, we reached 9 million people last year. So a million people came to the South Bank physically to watch, to watch our, our plays, productions, but 8 million saw them digitally, right? And that's completely new. Over 10 years ago, that would not have been the case at all. Um, and we're also using you know, dig innovation, digital innovation to reach as many young people as we possibly can. So we are 
we now have a digital platform in every state school, state secondary school for free. That's 3,000, over 3,000 state schools. And we co we've committed that we are going to ensure that every young person before they leave school has an experience of the National Theatre. So you combine what we, the artistic yep. element, which is excellent, and the ability to provide people with access to an art form that they might not otherwise have the opportunity to see. That's why the National Theatre is so great. Extraordinary. Uh, then in 2020, you were appointed by the Secretary of State for GCMS as the chair of the £2 billion Cultural Recovery Fund set up during COVID. And this fund was established to ensure the survival of the UK's cultural infrastructure. Um, and with, as you say, the UK being the world leader in the creative arts, how important was it to, to get those funds to organisations in, in need of support at that time? So you, you, you hear the word existential. It's an existential crisis, crisis. quite often. Um, but if you go back to 2020, this was an existential crisis. So with organisations that rely on people coming through the door, they were closed. It's the first time theatres, I think, have been closed uh, since Cromwell's time. They actually remained open during the, during the Blitz, right? So this is really, really difficult time. And it was obvious that pretty much every institution around the country would fail if there wasn't some, some form of intervention. So the fact that the government stepped up and wrote a two billion pound check was extraordinary and, it, it, and incredibly needed. And, and our role as the Cultural Recovery Fund Board, which I chaired, was to ensure that you know, the money got to the right place in a timely fashion, because organizations were absolutely on the brink. But because it's taxpayers' money, it had to be done efficiently and effectively. Right? So it's two billion pounds of taxpayers' money. So we, I, we established a, a model which was like a private equity fund, but we, ha we only had four months to actually raise it and distribute it and make sure we got all the money back. So, but, but that was quite successful. So we ended up funding 5,000 organizations across country. 70% um, of them are outside of London, 70% of them are small. Um, the really interesting aspect of that is that it, of course, you'd expect us to be funding opera, ballet, theatre, yeah. but we also funded cinema, bingo halls, museums, railways, all sorts of different activities. So that, that really said to me was, okay, culture really means different things to different people, right? So that whole cultural lands landscape is so bigger and so broader than you might expect. It's so important to people, right? When they go out into their local community, what do they do effectively with their, with their, with their spare time? And you know, the fact that Culture Recovery Fund enabled them to continue to do that. Is, um, it, it, for this country, I think it's a really big deal. Especially yeah, critical so to return you one of our great critical. assets, as you Absolutely say. Absolutely critical. Yeah. Another of our great assets, uh, and your appointment as chairman of the BBC Holdings. Uh, that was announced in uh, 2022, and this is a two billion business that brings the highest level of British content to a global audience. And that is in the sort of latest move to sharpen the corporation's commercial focus. Um, and the government is uh, seeking to overhaul and pursue uh, the opportunities ahead. Looking at the BBC and keeping up with the, uh, the sort of competitive nature in the yeah. world in which it op operates with Netflix, Amazon Prime, and so on and so forth. Um, how do you feel it will play play out in the future mm. in that sort of very competitive mm. landscape that we witness today? The BBC is an extraordinary organisation. 
right? So it's, it, it, it's been around for a hundred years. Not many organizations have been around for a hundred years. Um, it reaches every week, 90% of the UK population, 90% use the BBC. Uh, 400 million people outside of the UK interact with the BBC every week. So it's, a, it's an exemplar and, and, and a, a real distributor uh, of British values around the world. But uh, right now, it's, it's an unprecedented time. And again, again, it's an example of disruption. So historically, you've had to watch TV or listen to radio when it was broadcast to you, and you had to watch it in a particular place. Now, you can watch whatever you want to watch, wherever, whenever. That's what streaming means. That's the digital revolution. So the BBC has to react to that. The BBC has to create great content. Historically, it has been, it has been brilliant at producing great content. It has to continue to do that for all its audiences. And it has to be able to distribute it and allow people to watch it when they want to watch it and where they want to watch it. That's the iPlayer. Right, so it's, it is a, a, a really, it, it's a time of total change in the TV, uh, radio, broadcast industry. So BBC Commercial, our role is to, where, where it's appropriate, is to take BBC product, BBC services, BBC brand, and commercialize that and create more income which will then go back into the license fee and supporting the license fee to enable the BBC to create great content and create a place to distribute it, which is the iPlayer. So that's the, that's the role of, of the BBC commercial, which is, which is what I chair. You know, and I think it's important for the country that you know, we, we sort of get it right. Because if you think about that 90% reach and 400 million people around the world watching and listening to BBC, it's an important institution. It has to, it has to be able to operate in the modern world. Fantastic. And rather clock forward 10 years, any views as to, or 15 years, what, what the picture might look like? I, I, you know, things are changing so quickly. Who, 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 who knows? Who, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, further highlights of your personal achievements. Uh, in 2016, you were knighted in her late majesty Queen Elizabeth's uh, birthday honours for your extraordinary voluntary and charitable services. I, can you explain to our listeners the process of receiving your knighthood and what did that moment mean to you? Yeah, so uh, you, you, you might know, Charles, you, what happens is you get a letter um, that comes through the post and this letter is, is addressed private and confidential, only be opened by the addressee. So I come home one day and my wife says, oh, there's something in your office you might want to go and look at. Of course, she'd opened it. Um, <laughs> it came out completely out of the blue. I had absolutely no idea how it happened, why it happened. It just arrived. So that was very, very surprising. Um, and the, 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 be the beauty of, 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 of that is that you get to be knighted by, but it was, I was knighted by Prince Charles at the time and your family, you get to come along, right? And that, my wife came along and my children came along and that was a, that was a really uh, emotional and happy occasion. Uh, that, that, that's great. And my mum was, my mum was still alive, so she got to witness it as well. So that was, that was brilliant. Oh, that is fantastic. And then you were also selected by the Harvard Business School as one of the 84 agents of change, black alumni of Harvard Business School, uh, to those who have made a real difference in the world. Again, 
How did this achievement make you feel, particularly given the nature of the organization and, and, and the way you answered the earlier question of the importance of Harvard and it as an institution? So that 84 agents of change goes back to the 1930s. So there are 84 people on that list during the 1930s. And when you, when you look at the experience that I had, or I think about the experience I had in America, and it was, as I said, it was a slight, it is a divided country and it's very, it's very difficult. Some of this is for people of color and, you know, mixed race to, to do well. You look at that list and I thought to myself, well, that's what I think. What about the, those people that are on that list from the 1930s and 40s and 50s and 60s? So it, it made me feel incredibly humble to, to, to be part of that, part of that list. Um, it also made me reflect on, yes, the power of education, but if you've been, if you've received education, you've been lucky enough to receive it and done well, you, know, you have a, I think you have an obligation and responsibility to ensure that you know, as many other people could receive that as you do, so they can go on to make a difference and help other people, you know, get through the door and up the ladder. Um, because as, as you said, that list goes back 100, nearly a hundred years. And, and the early people on that list created the foundation to, to enable me to go to Harvard Business School. Um, and I would hope that I could do the same for others. Ah, that's a wonderful, wonderful answer. Damon, you are an extraordinary role model in the world of business and, and indeed beyond. And my final and related question is one that I asked to all who join me on, on off the agenda. We live in complex, challenging, uh, difficult times uh, where hope and aspiration are indeed much needed. What lines of support, encouragement, and advice would you give to that younger generation, particularly as they start out on their own career path? So pre-career, I would definitely say education is absolutely crucial. Right, so um, yeah, my, my journey obviously reflects that. Then, then I, I, I'd sort of slightly repeat a couple of the things I said yeah. before. I think there's no reason why you can't do it. So think big. I think that's so important. Um, as I, you know, my journey, I was, as I said, I was there in Leicester and then 10 years later I was in the city and I was there for 30 years and that's a bedrock of the career. So think big, um, do something you enjoy, have some fun, right? It only comes around run, so really have some fun. And then there's a great quote that I like. I think it might have been Ronald Reagan, I'm not sure, but he, he said there were three types of people, right? There are people that make things happen. There are people that watch things happen and there are people that wonder what happened. And you really want to be one of those people that make things happen. You want to be number one. That's fantastic. Damon, thank you so, so much Pleasure. for joining us on Off The Agenda. Well, it's been a delight and a wonder to listen to your story and your stories. We wish you all the very, very best in your career you. ahead. Uh, and we look forward hope, to welcoming you back to Off the Agenda in due course. Pleasure. Thank you very much Charles, indeed. Thank you very much. Well, it's been a real honour and privilege to speak with Sir Damon Buffini today and to hear his inspiring story and stories. Thank you, Sir Damon, and thank you all for listening. That's all from me, other than to say, as always, stay tuned for more conversations, great discussions and inspirational guests. Thank you again, and bye for now.